Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's like the baptism scene in Godfather 2 when Michael Corleone decides to take out all of his enemies at once. In one weekend, Russell Brand, Lauren Boebert, and almost Robert F. Kennedy Jr., taken out of the game. And there's a coup in the Congo. You're getting used to this, aren't you? Not to be confused with Patrice Lumumba's Democratic Republic of the Congo, but the Republic of the Congo is now, right this minute, in the midst of a military takeover. The head of the presidential guard has seized power whilst his boss is in New York for the United Nations General Assembly. That's pretty familiar, too. And we're remembering the original 9-11, when President Salvador Allende was murdered, by extension, by the United States of America. This is going to be a particularly bumpy, though careful, night here on the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Like the Vichy police captain in Casablanca, I was shocked, shocked to discover, thanks to the expenditure of millions of pounds by Rupert Murdoch's Sunday Times and the British state-owned Channel 4, and thousands of investigative journalistic hours that Russell Brand was a rapacious, misogynistic sex addict. Not just a sex addict, but a heroin addict and an alcohol addict and addicted also to himself. And his self-obsessive narcissism is a significant part of this story. But I was shocked, weren't you, that a man who told us many hundreds of times in public, on the stage, on television, and in books, had a shocking attitude to women and to sex. Mind you, it didn't stop a large number of women. He says more than a thousand women. And who am I to doubt him? Going into his bedroom for what I assume was not a putative game of Scrabble or Tiddlywinks or, I don't know, Gin Rummy. Presumably people went to Russell Brand's bedroom knowing he was Russell Brand. Now the much-hyped Channel 4 and Sunday Times exclusive on which they expended more journalistic effort than, for example, uh, the client list of Jeffrey Epstein and his paramour, Miss Maxwell. Not a bad British angle on a story, you might thought. Sunday Times Channel 4 reveal the full list of those to which Ghislaine Maxwell were ferrying and carrying underaged girls for illicit, illegal sex. Now, that would be insight. That would be an effort worthy of the term journalistic practice. But we are asked to believe that all of these millions and all of these thousands of man-woman hours of British journalism's finest was honestly expended to bring down a comedian. Seriously? We'll come to what the other purposes might have been. But let's deal with some things right up front. I don't know Russell Brand. I've only met him once. He's never done any favor for me. In fact, quite the contrary. And I absolutely deplore, as does he, the misogynistic, 
savagery of his attitude towards women in that period of his life in which he was, and told us so, rapaciously promiscuous, a predator of the worst kind, a predator you would not wish any woman, let alone your own daughters, to be involved with. He's 48 years old. This period lasted roughly half of his life. But it's 20 years gone, the heroin addiction. He still attends Narcotics Anonymous. Indeed, still works hard to help other people addicted to the evil of drugs. I don't know if he was still drinking at the time of the oldest of the allegations now leveled against him, which is 16 years, during which we never heard any whisper of these allegations, certainly not in the mainstream media because they were actually employing Russell Brand at the time. At the time that these allegations are stated to have occurred, Russell Brand was a media darling on the BBC and on Channel 4. But I don't know when he stopped drinking. I only know that he stopped taking heroin in 2002, more than 20 years ago. The oldest of these allegations dates back to 2006. And the most recent of these allegations is 10 years ago. No report to the police about Russell Brand's conduct in these four cases showcased by the media this weekend has ever been made. In fact, so far as we know, even yet has not been made. The people making the allegations were, of course, represented by silhouettes or actors or both. And it looked and sounded that way, didn't it? No police report of any crime currently stands against Russell Brand, even though the Metropolitan Police today, in the wake of the story, have asked what they call victims to come forward. Victims that have not yet appeared. Now, if the allegations against Russell Brand of sexual assault and rape are well-founded, the place for them to be dealt with is in a court of law where people will have to give evidence not for a check but under oath where people will have to tell their story in front of the person they are accusing and in front of their lawyers will have to be cross-examined forensic evidence will have to be adduced telephone evidence, text messages and the like will have to be adduced. None of that has happened so far for Russell Brand. He has been subjected to the kind of trial by television, trial by accusation of the medieval kind. Now, I've been in this picture before. I could show you my scars incurred in defense of Julian Assange. Remember those? Remember those who were demanding that Julian Assange be deported to Sweden to face what turned out to be absolutely fake accusations of sexual misconduct, sexual assault, and rape. I said they were fake at the time. I said they were a transparent attempt to get Assange out of Britain to a country more likely to extradite him to the United States of America to face his real charge, which was to embarrass and expose the crimes of the American empire and other empires in his role as WikiLeaks publisher-in-chief. I was right about Julian Assange. And all those people 
who turned on him at the first whiff of these allegations turned out to be wrong, if not turned out to be hypocrites. In fact, some of my own comrades who shunned and blacklisted me because of my defense for Assange are now to be found on the front lines of demonstrations demanding the release of the very same Julian Assange they had implicitly denounced as a rapist back at the time. Less well-known and definitely less eminent. Alex Salmond, the erstwhile first minister of my country of Scotland, erstwhile leader of the nationalist separatist party, the SNP, a man whose politics I abhorred, but whose character I knew well, having spent decades in the British Parliament with him. He was falsely accused of sexual crimes. Seems it's the go-to when someone inconvenient has to be gotten rid of. A majority women jury at the High Court in Edinburgh cleared some of these charges and he walked free but destroyed as a political figure of substance. These allegations against Brand should be investigated by the police. Far as I could see from my reading, it's the police in Los Angeles that would have to do the investigating because the alleged crimes as opposed to appalling behavior are alleged to have happened in Los Angeles. Have they? Have they even yet received a report of a crime in Los Angeles? And if they have, will they wonder, as I do, why the people making these accusations have waited until now to make them? Russell Brand is apparently fond of saying, ask yourself, why am I being told this? And why am I being told it now? And that's what I want now to move on to. Half of his life, Russell Brand behaved like a beast in the jungle or an animal in the fields. But the second half of his life has not been like that. He's now married with two young daughters. He's a pillar of charity fundraising for women's charities, for mental health charities, for drug addicts, for alcohol addicts, and I don't know, perhaps for sex addicts too. He has left his life of addiction. What has he done instead? Well, I don't watch his program, although 26 million people do. That's rather more of a circulation than the Sunday Times in a year. That's rather more than the viewership of ailing, failing Channel 4 television, which requires subvention from the British taxpayer even to continue to exist and depends upon the goodwill of the British state and the British government. In these television shows, on YouTube, on Rumble, elsewhere on social media, what does Russell Brand nowadays talk about? He talks against the war in Ukraine. He talks against lockdowns. He talks against compulsory vaccinations. He talks against Big Pharma. And I just wonder, as may you, if it is that that has brought Russell Brand right over the target. I wonder if it was Russell Brand's interview with Tucker Carlson, another man 
who talks against the Ukraine war. Another man who talks about and against Big Pharma. Another man who talks against lockdowns and the vax industry. By the way, Tucker, I hope you've led a blameless life. Because if I'm any judge, you'll be the next person in their firing line. Or maybe it was Russell Brand's interview with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. that so attracted him to the fire, the flak, the millions of pounds worth of flak from these two pillars of British state orthodoxy, the Sunday Times and Channel 4. We already know that Mr. Kennedy has not led a blameless life, though not as shameful as the first half of Russell Brand's life, I hope. Maybe they have other plans for Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Because this weekend, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was almost murdered in the state of California where his father was murdered, in the United States of America where his uncle, the president of the republic, was murdered. Thanks to his private security firm, a man pretending to be a U.S. Marshal with two guns in holsters under each arm and extra ammunition packed in case was thwarted in what may very well have been an attempt to bring RFK Jr.'s increasingly strident and successful campaign to a shuddering halt. Why was this left to a private security company? And I take my hat off to them. Because Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, who has a bust of RFK Jr.'s father behind him in the Oval Office in the White House in Washington, who claims to be a follower of the original RFK, refuses to provide secret service cover for his opponent in the Democratic primaries for the presidency in 2024. Just think about that. A man whose uncle President Kennedy and whose father, Senator Kennedy, were both murdered in public, on duty. RFK is being refused. The Secret Service cover that is routinely every day being provided for Hunter Biden. How low can Joe Biden sink? How low can the Democratic Party, so-called, of the United States sink? We may not have seen the bottom yet, but this is pretty low, Joe. This is pretty low. And lastly, a more whimsical example. A woman that British viewers will never have heard of. A congresswoman, a Republican, a Trump-supporting Republican, Lauren Boba, a single woman, a divorcee, is dating a single man. And they went to a theater together. And miraculously, high-definition video has emerged of Congresswoman Bobart's breasts being fondled entirely consensually by her beau, who happens to be a Democratic Party supporting bar owner, whom she has been dating since her divorce. Now, admittedly, she's well-blessed in the décolletage department. But it is remarkable that the video 
of Lauren Boebert being fondled and apparently enjoying it is clearer and much, much faster than any of the video from January 6th, the laughably described insurrection in Washington, D.C. Brand, Bobart, Kennedy, who will rid the establishment of these turbulent priests? That's the question you need to be asking yourselves. I told you to fasten your seatbelts. This is going to be a bumpy night. It's the mother of all talk shows. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. In the run-up, to 9-11-1973, I was already a hyper-political activist. I had been, actually, since the Tet Offensive in the Vietnam War in 1968. But as the Vietnam War wound down to a victorious conclusion, much of my activity and much of my attention turned to the defense of the Chilean president, Salvador Allende, and his popular unity government, a democratically elected socialist government in a Latin America infested with generalissimos and fascist juntas and dictatorships of various kinds. Every day I would wake up expecting an American organized and inspired overthrow of the state, but I didn't expect Allende himself to be murdered. I did not expect to see one half of his spectacles smeared in blood on the floor of the palace in Santiago. I did not expect, with Western approval, 40 thousand of his supporters to be tortured and murdered in stadia, including stadia in which languished some of the most accomplished, most gifted, most human of the Chilean people, people who had become a byword for Chile's resistance to fascism. I did not expect that the lousy dictator Augusto Pinochet would become so fated by Western allies that Mrs. Thatcher would count him as a friend and bosom buddy, that his drowning of millions of Chileans in the cold bath of the economic doctrines, shock doctrines of Milton Friedman and the neocon hordes so beloved by so many of Western politicians from the 1970s until now. I did not expect any of that. And every time I hear of 9-11, which is often I think, of course, of the 4,000 people who perished in New York. But first and foremost, I will always think first of the 40,000 murdered in Chile by an American-organized and inspired coup d'etat. And the millions of Chileans who spilled out as refugees around the world, including many to my own city 
and my own country. Professor Marcello Ferrada de Noli is a renowned authority on those days and what happened next. And I'm glad to say he joins us now on the mother of all talk shows. Professor, welcome to the show. It is a melancholy fact, isn't it? It is a melancholy fact, isn't it, that nobody, except people your age and mine, very much remembers the bloodbath in Chile in 1973. Indeed, uh, uh, the new generations are not so well informed. They are more and more disinformed about uh, what's been happening in history and uh, in referring uh, uh, episodes or, or uh, in, in uh, geopolitical episodes that actually have uh, uh, shaped the, the current situation that we have nowadays. What was uh, Allende's biggest crimes that earned him the enmity of the United States of America, the CIA, and the uh, European satraps of the U.S. empire? Well, uh, that could be some up in one and only um, uh, event. Uh, he was the first uh, democratically elected president uh, with a socialist background uh, and with a program which is, was clearly um, a, a device to to um, uh, to construct a new uh, socialist uh, society in Chile um, in all kinds of spheres, economically and, and uh, in health care and, and property of, of the uh, uh, of different um, uh, means of production in agriculture and fundamentally also the nationalization of uh, the mining, the copper mining companies and other mining which were at a time uh, in control by the United States and other uh, corporate uh, interests. But uh, uh, in the main, in the main, it was not a, a polit a economical threat. It was absolutely the political uh, or geopolitical threat that the victory of Allende uh, could signify for reshaping the um, panorama at that time. Um, Kissinger said that uh, himself in a meeting with uh, with President Nixon. Uh, it was uh, uh, even before the coup when, when it was clear that Allende could be elected. And then he said uh, the main threat is that the other other um, countries in South America in the first place and perhaps uh, uh, others uh, in other uh, latitude uh, would f uh, follow suit and, and uh, elect uh, uh, democratically the president with, with uh, a similar socialist background that the one Allende has. has. What, what role did Kissinger and Nixon play in the overthrow of President Allende? Oh, well, it was a fundamental uh, role. They took the initiative for this uh, uh, for this action, and uh, long before the the coup, the coup took place uh, in September 11, uh, 1973. But uh, already before, in a meeting that. Um, uh, in a meeting that was held in the, in, in the White House uh, with the presence of uh, Kissinger and the presence of uh, uh, Richard Helms, then uh, director of uh, the CIA, uh, Nixon's order were uh, to, uh, to create the conditions to overthrow uh, uh, Allende if he was going to assume the presidency, but uh, preferably that uh, Organize a set of activities that would prevent that Allende could be elected, and uh, the, his orders were, uh, I mean, crystal clear. We know this because the the National Archive have the, uh, published, uh, disclosed, uh, um, uh, declassified documents uh, in which are. Um, uh, are the notes of uh, Richard Helm, handwritten notes of Richard Helms, in which he he is he is uh, reproducing the words uh, said by by Nixon, and he ordered the CIA, the CIA, and uh, I quote: uh, um, "You have to dedicate full time." Uh, uh, 
full time and use the men, the best men uh, we have uh, in, in this endeavor. So uh, uh, that meeting took place uh, in September 15. Uh, there was uh, uh, two, uh, September 15, 970, there was um, two months before Allende could assume the presidency of the Republic of Chile. Um, yeah. Now, uh, the methods that they use to create the conditions have uh, become part of a playbook uh, that we have become familiar with in many other so-called color revolutions. This was an early color revolution, wasn't it? You use your soft power, your economic power, your cultural power, and your secret state power to undermine uh, the elected government of other countries as a precursor to overthrow them. Exactly. Uh, exactly. You know, uh, Kissinger's uh, orders were to uh, subvert the, the, the economic uh, uh, panorama as well as the political one, uh, to prepare, you know, the conditions or to give the military the reasons to to implement uh, a plan for a coup d'etat actually was a, a CIA plan. And uh, well, the same thing that uh, in one way or the other, exactly as you are saying, has been happening in the so-called uh, color revolutions. Uh, and the Ukrainian example uh, is not uh, at all outside uh, that uh, paradigm. I don't know if these professors, Friedman and co., uh, openly wished for tens of thousands of Chileans to be murdered and tortured uh, in the wake of the coup, uh, maybe that was an embarrassment to them, maybe not. Uh, but they certainly moved in quickly to make Pinochet the new tyrant, the poster boy, for uh, their kind of economic shock treatment, didn't they? Yeah, but you see, the the main uh, the main purpose of the coup d'état in Chile uh, in in the first uh, period was not uh, actually economic. Uh, uh, did not have an economic, purely economic character that came afterwards. Uh, as I said before, uh, the main purpose was to to uh, stop uh, um, the creation of one example that could be followed uh, by other countries in in, in the hemisphere and uh, etc. So, uh, but uh, uh, as soon as um, as uh, Pinochet took over, uh, then uh, as a reaction to the socialist uh, model of handling uh, um, the, con the economy, uh, then they resorted to an extreme uh, neoliberal, extreme economic liberal um, model represented by Friedman and, and their um, so-called Chicago boys. And, and even some economists from Chile went there to the United States and and study closely those uh, theories, um, which actually had a, a devastating um, effect in the economy of Chile. Well, excuse me, the economy of Chile was apparently very um, uh, successful. They, uh, Pinochet could um, eventually um, pay all the, the the debt that Chile had in international uh, uh, agencies, etc. But the thing is that that recovery or that uh, uh, success that the Chile could show economically uh, really, really represented an enormous sacrifice from from the poorer classes in Chile. I mean, uh, still Chile is um, known as. Um, uh, as the country with the best economy in, in Latin America, uh, uh, sometimes they use the, the the Chile model as an example for to to, to be uh, implemented in other countries. But uh, it is not so known that Chile still has uh, one of the highest uh, indexes when it comes to to um, uh, distribution of, of the income or which. 
is not is not favoring uh, the poor classes. I mean. Uh, Chile is a country, uh, is a rich country in the sense of the uh, of what they produce, in the sense of their um, uh, natural resources, etc. But the distribution of that uh, output, uh, it's uh, going still to the elites, the running classes, etc. So, so that model uh, started by the Friedman boys in in uh, uh, in Chile. Uh, um, the, the the main feature is not the the the, the success of the Chilean economy uh, uh, apparently in how it was viewed internationally, but it was the devastating effect that uh, occasioned uh, in uh, among the masses in Chile. I spent time with uh, Chileans in Paris this weekend. Uh, it is evident that the scars, the deep physical and psychological scars are suffered by Chilean society as a result of the coup have not at all entirely healed. Although uh, a socialist, self-styled socialist president now rules again in uh, Santiago, and indeed, I think uh, Allende's grandson is prominent in politics in the country, the slogan uh, no pardon and uh, no forgetting is very much still on the minds. It's unfinished business, isn't it? Yes, uh, of course it is, because uh, uh, the wounds are not being healed. Uh, we have uh, uh, families that still have uh, uh, members of, of, of their family. Uh, uh, not being accounted, uh, the, there, is, there is the phenomena of, of um, called the, the desaparecidos, uh, the, the missing ones, the disappeared uh, uh, people, and um, uh, of course, uh, when uh, when you don't know the, the fate uh, that actually um, uh, the fate of, of, of actually. I believe that it's nearly 2,000 people that just disappeared. You know? uh, and, and there is no explanation for that, and, and no further investigations. Of course, there are investigations, and, and some military have been uh, judged, and, 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 uh, uh, and sometimes they have been uh, condemned to, to terms in prison, but uh, that's not, that is not representative of what has been happening in Chile during the 50 years. So um, wounds, as I said, are, are not healed. And um, uh, and the wounds are not only those uh, referred personally uh, to to the mind, to to, to the memories of, 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 of those people who were fighting at a time. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the worst memory is uh, that uh, we are, because we are reminding of that in Chile, uh, of the economic catastrophe that signified for the, for the masses uh, the, the implementing of, of the uh, neoliberal model uh, by, by uh, <laughs> By Pinochet, and let me add just one thing, uh, but only, but also, you know, the political organizations, like, uh, for instance, the movement of the revolutionary left, Mir, uh, in which I participated in Concepcion in the uh, in the resistance activities of, of this moment, uh, we have lost the. Uh, uh, vast uh, number of, of our members, uh, not much in the actually resistance because it was uh, very short-lived and and, uh, uh, and we were defeated. Uh, but uh, the repression that Allende um, uh, initiated uh, from the 11th of September uh, onwards uh, was devastating for for our organization, who was the uh, the leading organization in terms of armed resistance, but also uh, against uh, other uh, organizations like uh, the Democratic uh, Socialist Party, um, the the Communist Party, of course, and and, and etc. They are also uh, open hills, not uh, uh, yet. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Open, open wounds, wounds not, yeah. 
Professor Marcello, thank you very much for joining us to remember the original 9-11. What did more damage to Libya, Storm Daniel or Obama-Hillary Clinton? 19,402 people have voted, and it's pretty bad news for Obama and Clinton. Let me take a quick break, and I'll be right back. Stay tuned. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Tuned. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Now, War of the Worlds was, of course, uh, a fictional invasion uh, of Earth by extraterrestrials who were not very peaceful. Um, Mind you, they were coming to a very hostile planet, weren't they? As indeed, they still might be. Because the pace is quickening on UFOs. Sometimes it looks like the state is uh, seeking a look-over-there moment when things get tough here on the planet Earth. Look up there. There must be life outside of our orbit. But other times, it looks fairly intriguing. In Mexico, in the Mexican Congress, over the last week or so, the remains, the skeletal remains of what it was claimed to be extraterrestrial non-human beings was unmasked. Some of them looked remarkably like current serving members of the U.S. Senate. Diane Feinstein and uh, Mitch McConnell. And even in the White House, Joe Biden sprang to mind. And they did look rather uncannily like Steven Spielberg's E.T., still one of the greatest movies ever made. But that could be because Spielberg was on to something. Let's see what lies beneath. Philip Mantle is a UFO researcher and author and the publisher of Flying Disc Press. What a wonderful name for a publishing house. Philip, thanks uh, very much for joining us. As I look out at the universe, as I do uh, every evening, uh, I find it literally absurd to imagine that there's no life anywhere in the multiple universes of billions of planets that have existed for billions of years. Is that how you feel about it? Absolutely, George, and and most scientists as well. I mean, our knowledge of the universe has expanded over this last 20 years or so, and it's now estimated that in the visible universe, we have two trillion galaxies. And within those two trillion galaxies, of course, there are countless stars and planets Uh, I don't know what the next one-up is from a trillion charge, to be honest, but it's an awful lot. (laughs) So, you know, the the universe is much larger than we ever imagined and much older as well. That's also been recently revised. We're talking, you know, billions of years. uh, And here we are in amongst it all. Yes, hallelujah, I say. Uh, It doesn't... uh... Uh, weaken my religious belief far from it. Uh, the idea that all of these trillions uh, of planets uh, and and galaxies uh, came into being entirely uh, as a chance uh, by chance and from nothing is certainly far more far fetched than having a belief in God. But I'll not tempt you down that road unless you want to go down it, of course. Uh, but the the idea that on only one tiny planet in only one galaxy 
life would develop is inherently ridiculous, no? Absolutely. Absolutely. Whether you believe in creation or, or you know, evolution, it, it really doesn't make any difference. If, you know, if you believe in creation, then why would, you know, a supreme being create such a large universe and have us as the only, you know, intelligent species uh, in it? Same with, you know, evolution. We know that the, the chemical compounds that make up you and I, George, are in abundance everywhere. They're not specific just to our small part of the universe. They are everywhere. And we know through study on this planet where you find water, you know, H2O, there is life. And of course, hydrogen and oxygen uh, is in abundance everywhere in the universe. So the probability of life existing elsewhere is, is, is you know, pretty, pretty good. Whether it looks anything like you or me, though, George, that's a different... That's a different matter altogether. <laughs> yes, let's come to that. Uh, were you impressed by the uh, display in the Mexican Congress last week? Not at all. The, 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 the things put on display in the Mexican Congress are a hoax. They are fake. Uh, they were presented by a gentleman called Jaime Massoun, who's a well-known hoaxer and he's been at it for, for years and years and years, and yet they've fallen for it again. Uh, why is another question, and uh, you know, I honestly don't know, but these are fake, George, so take no notice of them whatsoever. What should we be looking out for then? What, uh, if any, because uh, by the same token, if there are trillions of galaxies, and whatever, as you say, the number after trillion is, I don't know myself, gazillion, <laughs> maybe, Brazilian, I have no idea. Uh, but if there are uh, all these places to choose, it might well be that nobody ever visited uh, us, uh, this uh, tiny little planet. But is there any evidence or reason to believe or suspect, in your view, well, uh, well, that I mean, any extraterrestrial intelligence ever came here? That's a good question. I mean, our own Ministry of Defence will tell you that they have had sightings reported to them that they cannot they cannot identify. They're not going to say they're extraterrestrial, they just remain unidentified. Same just this week, uh, NASA has set up their own, you know, investigation. And again, they, their head said, you know, there are sightings that we, we, we don't know what they are. They remain unidentified. And uh, also the, the American government set up their own UFO study separate from NASA, although they will coordinate with each other. And again, they have released a number of things statistically saying you know, there's a number of the things that's been reported to us, primarily by military people, yeah, usually pilots, uh, that, that you know we can't figure out at the moment. We, they leave us scratching our head. But you don't have to just rely on, on military personnel. Uh, George, there are people from all walks of life who just about their own daily business uh, count, encounter something that, you know, again, after careful investigation, leaves civilian researchers like myself uh, scratching my head. And I'm, I'm fairly sceptical, George. I'm, I'm not a believer in that respect, um, you know, uh, but there are certain things that you really do puzzle you. Whether they're extraterrestrial or not remains to be seen but certainly puzzling. So the U in UFO still stands for unidentified. Mm. What would be some of the most interesting uh, things that have puzzled you? Well, you, you mentioned Steven Spielberg, you know, in, in the introduction. Steven Spielberg's favourite case, because, you know, he, wrote, he made the movie Close Encounters. The phrase Close Encounters came from a UFO researcher, Dr. J. Allen Hynek. He worked on uh, the United States Air Force Project Blue Book. And he investigated a case in a place called Pascagoula, Mississippi, in 1973, where two local fishermen had a close encounter, which we know today as an alien abduction. And they were in interrogated in the sheriff's office at, uh, the following day at Keesler Air Force Base. And since then, you know, uh, a number of other witnesses 
in and around the area at the same time George have now stepped forward and come out of the woodwork where this location was where these two gentlemen were fishing that night is not an out of the way place it's right by highway 90 there's a huge motorway bridge goes over the river there's boats coming and going and people have said well I saw that thing that night as well so you know it, it is one of the standout cases uh, and it was Alan, Dr. Alan Hynek's favorite case. And he investigated, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of them for the Air Force and then as a civilian researcher. Sometimes you read that uh, ancient phenomena, the wonders of the world, uh, the pyramids, for example, uh, the Inca and Mayan civilizations display a precision of, of geometry and uh, astronomy. Uh, that seem, on the face of it, to have been beyond what the levels of education and scientific uh, knowledge and indeed tools, uh, and, and including tools of measurement, uh, would have allowed it. Some believe that these are phenomena which seem to reflect a fleeting visit, perhaps, of people from other worlds. What do you think? Well, yeah, it's it's known as the ancient astronaut theory, you know, and it started with a chap by the name of Eric von Daniken uh, in his book, Chariots of the Gods. The subtitle was, you know, was is God an astronaut? You know, in other words, it's not some superior being in heaven. It's actually a spacefaring, you know, uh, alien from, from elsewhere. But, um, you know, there is no positive proof to support that. Uh, we do realize that, um, you know, our ancient ancestors were just as clever as you or I, George. Our brain didn't work any differently, but they uh, they worked within the environment they had at that time. And yes, there are puzzles, um, but we must go back, for example, look at the ancient Greeks. All our mathematics is based on, 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 on the Greeks. They even measured uh, the circumference of the earth. Uh, without sophisticated tools, you know, they knew it was round. And yet you still have uh, strange people today who argue that the Earth is flat, uh, which is beyond me, it really is. But, you know, the ancient astronaut theory is is, is, a, is, is a nice one, uh, and it would be nice if it was true, but again, it lacks that smoking gun, George, that one piece of evidence that would um, that would prove it. Uh, but... You know, it's it's nice, it's, and, and it will continue of that, I've no doubt. Of course, it's possible, Philip, that that uh, aliens took a look at the mess we are making <laughs> of this little world of ours and decided that we're not the kind of neighbours they want to get friendly with. That's possible, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it yourself, George, you know, you're, you're a passing tourist alien, and look at the the feuds and the wars and the starvation and, you know, natural catastrophes of one thing and another. And they think, well, perhaps we'll go somewhere else for a vacation. I'm not not coming here. So maybe a quick look and say, see you later, fellas, you know. You wouldn't blame them, would you? Philip, I love your no-nonsense way of talking, and I'm officially appointing you right here and now. I hope you'll accept as the mother of all talk shows, UFO expert and spokesman. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. And a laugh my pleasure, talking George. to you. Yeah, my, my pleasure and nice to talk to you. All the best. And you, thank you very much, Philip Mantle. There's a legend on the line. It's Simon in Florida with what is a looked forward to weekly update. Go ahead, Simon. Good evening, Mr. Galloway, and to your worldwide audience. Um, three very quick but significant yeah. stories and an extremely um, profoundly sincere uh, note of thanks to you. Um, first off, you'll recall we talked about um, Secretary of State Blinken's now infamous speech regarding uh, America's claim to leadership of the upcoming New World Order. Well, the same day the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs put out a 5,400-word treatise on their view of the future of global governance. So the superpowers are well and truly 
taking up the challenge from Mr. Blinken and the Biden administration. And then just two days after that, Nikolai Petrushev, who's been um, thought of as a possible replacement for Vladimir Putin, should one of Mr. Putin's um, numerous ailments that you have so concisely regaled us with, one of his utmost forms of cancer and so forth, finally take its deadly toll. He put out a long, long article exactly in line with the comment that you just made about the last old empire, and the article was called The Collapse of the Parasite Empire. So obviously the Russian administration has fully taken up the Blinken challenge as well, as indeed it would seem have the G77 group of now 134 nations who were meeting this week in of all places, and how ironic, Havana, Cuba. They've put out a 46-point declaration that whilst it doesn't name the United States, one could clearly make some clear inferences. And um, obviously, China has had their... um, wise hand in that declaration it definitely refers to the shared future of humanity so then we come upon the kingdom of saudi arabia where in completely unverified rumors it's been said that the crown prince has been listening to the back catalogue of the pet shop boys and when coming across it's a sin he realized that SIN referred to the Saudi-Israeli normalization and has indeed, in real life, pulled out at the last minute as an enormous blow to both the Biden administration and the administration of uh, Mr. Cohen and Mr. Netanyahu, whereas the Biden administration had hoped that this would be the crown jewel, so to speak, the crowning glory of his entire four-year term in terms of American foreign policy. And one might take the view, much like the lyrics, that he decided that he didn't want to live a life full of shame and decided to take the heed of the sheer grand ayatollah of Bahrain, who this week said that such a deal, or indeed opening an Israeli embassy, much as the Bahraini government did this week, would indeed have one declared as Muharib, which would mean an enemy of God, destined indeed to live a life full of shame. But on a personal note, Mr. Galloway, you made the joke about Biden and Blinken being regarded by the world as the Laurel and Hardy of diplomats. And that caused me to think that actually, rather than being a dynamic duo, perhaps for my own personal development and putting my views out in addition to your show, that if I were to find a co-partner and make an odd couple, much like Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau, that I needed somebody to um, clean up my language, keep my hands off the ladies and tidy up my news desk. So I'll be launching a show on Facebook daily called Weaponized News starting on Tuesday. And my very sincere thanks to you for giving me that idea. Well, I'll be in your audience. Uh, Hang on every word that you afford us, and I hope you'll continue to do so. And all I can say is, well done, the pet shop boys. And I never thought I'd say that. Ronan is a new caller, and he's in Belfast, but wants to talk about Russia. Ronan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, George. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to speak to you, sir. I've been an admirer for quite a long time. Thank you. Um, the, Thank you. the point that I want to make was a conversation that I had quite recently with a friend of mine, and I was sort of drawing various parallels uh, with the Russia-Ukraine and, you know, how that situation all started with the coup and all of that kind of thing. We know about Victoria Newland. We know about the conversation she had with Jeffrey Payet. And people still willfully ignore it. And people still to this day willfully ignore, you know, the 17,000 plus people that were killed in that eight year period before, you know, 22nd of February, 2022. You know, the 17,000 people. And the point that I was making to this friend of mine, he is a friend of mine, 
But, you know, these issues are divisive. And as you rightly know, you can be speaking to very intelligent people. But if they are blind to various facts, you know, they're as dumb as a post. It's, it's as simple as that. And I was trying to explain to him, look, we can agree. I live in Belfast. I grew up during the Troubles. Um, so I'm, I'm familiar with it in an awful lot of ways. I'm by no means an expert, but I'm familiar enough with everything that happened over here. And I was making the point to him that, look, you know, you can agree that the Troubles was a bad time. I think we can all agree that it, was, it wasn't good. There was nothing particularly great about the idea of people dying because, well, it ended up, you know, it became a bit of a religious thing, but you and I both know it was about civil rights at the start. And it was always about civil rights. And my point to this gentleman was, listen, in, whenever Svoboda and Jansvik and all these other people basically got in, whenever they were handpicked, the first edict that they put down was, if you speak Russian as your primary language, you're now a second-class citizen. And that was their only crime. That was literally their only crime. That was why they started being beaten in the streets, having their businesses attacked, their houses attacked, which eventually escalated to the full-scale assault on the Donbass region that we have seen over the last, well, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like only yesterday, but, you know, we're, we're, we're nine years into this at this point, you know. Nine years, and yeah. my whole point, almost a decade, yeah. yeah Exactly. And, and my whole point to him was, listen, 17,000 people killed in eight years and people didn't bat an eyelid because they're Russians. And I get it. There's a degree of Cold War hangover with an awful lot of this stuff. And we've been bombarded for years and years and years and years about Putin's this, Putin's that, Putin's a bad man. Listen, I'm sure he's done plenty of bad things, but I don't think he holds a candle to Tony Blair personally. I don't think he holds a candle even to guys like Cameron, in all truth. You know, because whatever you want to think about Vladimir Putin, he has done good things for the Russian people, and that has always been his primary concern. Now, in relation to this escalation that we are watching, and we are watching it, and there is a very, very real threat of, you know, full-blown Armageddon, and it's foolish to pretend that there isn't. It really is. My whole point is that people, and it goes to the point that you were making to your previous caller, People need to go back and they need to read the history of these events. They need to read about the OUNM and the OUNB. The OUNB was Stefan Bandera. This is the guy that the Kiev government has, for the last number of years, has been renaming streets after these people. They've been, you know, erecting statues and proclaiming all of this, you know, this wonderful, this great paragon of Ukrainian virtue. The man was a murderer. Was some, what was it, 1.25 to 1.5 million? A mass murderer, a, mass murderer. a genocider and, of millions of people, a, a Hitler auxiliary in the mass murder of Jews, of Polish people, of Ukrainian people, of Russian people. A mass murderer is a national hero of the regime in Kiev. I'm cutting you short, Ronan. Only for this reason, and that is the hour and the presence of a legend on the line after you. But that was your first call, but it was the best call of what has been an evening of many great calls. So don't be a stranger. Come back soon. Norma in Bristol, the legend is the last caller on the line now. Norma, what would you like to say? Well, George, um, I've got a lot of stress at the moment uh, because my husband is very seriously ill, but my family and neighbours are rallying around. So I thought I'd tell you this little story. Um, it's true. A long time ago, um, when I was participating in Big Brother's Little Brother show, and the presenter was Russell oh, yeah. Brand, and at the close of the show... He came up to me and he kissed me on the cheek and he said that I was a star. And I've always remembered that. How prescient, how far-sighted was he when he spotted you all those years ago, decades ago, as a future star of the mother of all talk shows? I'm terribly sorry about your stress, Norma. You're in my prayers. And I know for a fact are in the thoughts of 
everybody who watches regularly the mother of all talk shows. I've run out of time. Thank I'm you very, very happy much. that we got that little vignette from Norma in about the day that she kissed Russell Brand. I've run out of time, but not run out of things to say. Uh, the show will be back, God willing, uh, on Wednesday at the slightly later time of 9 p.m. Who knows, we may well uh, have uh, seen developments in the uh, issues that we've talked about on the show here tonight, particularly that Crimean story that broke on Sky News just before the end. But I want you, in conclusion, not to miss the significance of the fact that out of almost 21,000 people, a tiny handful blame the incredible misery in Libya on a storm rather than on those who stormed it on a pack of lies. David Cameron, Sarkozy, Obama, Biden, Clinton. They destroyed Libya on a pack of lies. And now the results are washing up. Dead. Dead on the beach of the Mediterranean country of Libya. May God damn them these criminals in Washington, in Whitehall, and in the Elysee. So much I'd like to say, some of which I cannot, but maybe I'll be able to say more on Wednesday. Do join me then, please, for the midweek mother of all talk shows at 9 p.m. UK time. And don't forget my message. If you were to bring just one other person, family member, a workmate, a co-parishioner, and an, an acquaintance. Bring them on Wednesday to Moats. See you then. <laughs>